Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 209, recorded on November 18th, 2020. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Arkin. And this episode is brought to you by us and all the things we're offering to the Python community. But I kind of want to take a, a step back in my whole career and start uh, start back where I spent a little bit of time in, in .NET. Isn't that a, a weird thing for me to do on a Python podcast? Uh, yeah, but you're kind of a .NET kind of guy in your past. I like C Sharp all right. Like if I, had did not, if I wasn't doing Python, that's probably what I would be doing. But look. Well, thank God for Python. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, also, I just want to point out that this is not my fault. This is uh, Anthony Shaw's fault. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Anthony Shaw wrote an article showing you how to use one of the more exciting inventions, evolutions, something like that with regard to Python and how it's actually executed. And it has to do with .NET. So he wrote an article called Running Python on .NET 5. So there's a couple of layers we got to unpack here to, to finally put this together for everyone. So way back on episode 49, like when I was living in Germany type of way back, I talked about this thing called Pigeon, P-Y-D. J-I-O-N with Brett Cannon. Okay? okay. So what this was is a way to like shim into CPython something that would intercept when a frame, a function frame was being executed and you know hand over the Python bytecode. When you run Python, it gets compiled to those PYC files into bytecode. But then unlike say .NET and Java, which JIT compiles that to machine instructions, they just jams that through the big C of Al.C loop, like the 3,000 line switch statement that is Python's runtime, right? <laughs> so it gets like mixed into that workflow and it can actually take that. And there was talk about maybe compiling to the JavaScript Chromium engine potentially mm. or to .NET, right? Those are like, it could be, so the idea was you could plug in some alternative JIT compiler to be given segments of python and said run this block of python cool right okay so you know obviously compiled code has at least the potential to be a lot faster if it really understands what it's compiling than interpreted code okay so that's thing one thing two is net traditionally used to be this thing that ran on windows and it only ran on windows and that was a problem for a lot of people so microsoft came up with this thing called net core which was the open source version a multi-platform open source version of .NET. And just recently they said, it's really silly to have these two things. So let's just come up with this thing called .NET 5 that is the new cross-platform open source replacement that puts those things together. Okay? And okay. I'm leaking to like some of the announcements. They just did a conference over there. People can check it out if they want to go deep. Number three, things that run in .NET often are faster than Python. Like you can debate that, but like especially the numerical types of bits because they work with you know, integers and floats, not high object long pointers and so on. And so I just ran across the Stack Overflow post where someone was complaining that their Python implementation of something was 31 times slower than C Sharp. Like that's, that's outside the margin of error probably. It's not good. I mean, we can debate about whether or not Python is fast or slow. And I think that's a really interesting conversation because developing it is faster. If you bring in things like NumPy, all of a sudden you're down to C++, which is probably flat out faster. And there's just all these variations, right? Yep. So not to put too much of a point on it, but it, it is a place where code runs pretty quickly. So if you could get some Python code to run on that place as well, that would be pretty sweet. So what people have traditionally done to make their code faster, as many people know, is 
compile, like write it in C and compile it as a C extension. You know, things like NumPy might do that. Or use something like Cython, which basically takes, instead of write in C, you write it in Python, but then it just compiles it to C, which then is compiled to machine instructions. So there's like this sort of escape hatch, right? Yeah. So .NET has this JIT compiler that comes with it. Pigeon is this project that allows you to plug a JIT compiler into the Python execution. So the people over at Microsoft, Brett Cannon and Dino Veland, hopefully I got that right, the people involved, have been actually working on this for the last four years. And they're now, you can now use this Pigeon project in Python 3.9. And the reason is back in 3.7, there was a PEP called PEP 5.2.3, which was basically an API for swapping out frame execution with a replacement implementation. And that's where you might take out interpreter and inject JIT compiler. So basically they've just, you know, now that 3.7 came out with that, they've been building on that. And he's got some really cool examples. Like all you go over there is you pip install pigeon, you know, import pigeon, pigeon dot enable or like something like that to say start. And that's it. There's no other changes to your code. And now it's running JIT compiled on .NET 5 cross-platform. That's pretty cool. It's got some real interesting possibilities there, right? Yes. And it uses the... So there's been other things where you could like plug in Python into alternate runtimes and VMs like Jython and Iron Python and so on. This is not that. This literally uses the same standard library. Your C extensions are supposed to still work, right? So what they did is they actually said... They actually went and they tested the entire C Python test suite on all platforms with this. And this is actually the first JIT implementation to ever pass the test suite. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, right. Because so we yeah. think, got things like PyPy, but it's like 94% or whatever, like some, you know, mostly, mostly Python, but it's not all Python, right? So this is really cool that they've got this high performance runtime, cross-platform JIT compiler that they just seem to have successfully plugged into Python. Yeah, so... It's a running which version of Python? 3.9. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Yeah. So it doesn't like, like a lot of these other things said, well, let's replace the Python runtime with X and then it'll be mostly the same. And so what yeah. this does instead is it plugs in just at that PEP 5.2.3 frame execution layer and says, you want to run this part of a function. How do you do that? It's just that little bit that changes. So other than that, it's the same old Python 3.9 that you know and love that I'm far as I can tell. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. It is pretty awesome. And then a little, like some extra news on this, unless you already mentioned it. This happened a couple of days ago. Pigeon is unfortunately frozen in the Microsoft repo, but the Anthony's fork is now the official fork. What? Yeah. <laughs> He's doing so, so much interesting low level stuff. Anthony is. Yeah. He's got his like C Python source code book and, Oh, yeah, so yeah, that's cool. You're linking over to it. <laughs> so all this stuff is very exciting and it has the possibility for code to run much faster. So for example, given something that it can tell is here's a, a pi long object pointer thing. Could we convert that? And it's small. Could we convert that to just a you know four byte integer and do integer math instead of like complex math, right? Like that would make a tremendous difference in speed. Yeah. That said, what they've done here so far is just let's make it run and not break. And yeah. now now they're going to start working on the optimization. So this JIT compiler hasn't done any optimizations yet, but they're going to start teaching Pigeon how to understand the Python code. Say, could we restructure that to get the same outcome, but in a much more native to the machine way? 
So is it faster? A little bit, not a ton yet, but it opens the door for huge improvements by working specifically on the JIT compiler, understanding how to take code that it gets and, and turn it into something. Yeah, and the, this sort of cross work and stuff is an interesting, just interesting about you know working with languages, working with uh, whether or not you're going to do interpreted versus JIT compiled and things like that. It's a very interesting story. Yeah, yeah, and that Stack Overflow thing I linked to. They also talk about PyPy. PYPY, and how it also made the example there go quite a bit faster. So anyway, JITs seem to be an interesting option here. So from PEP 523 to 621, let's keep rolling on the PEP, man. The PEP 621 is, I guess, a standard, trying to standardize some of the metadata in PyProject.toml. So we've talked about packaging in PyProject.toml a lot. I think the different projects like Black and Flit and others have been using a loophole in the uh, the original spec that said, yeah, you can put extra stuff in there, but we don't recommend it to everybody who's putting extra stuff in it. <laughs> They're like, but are we forbidden? No, let's do it. <laughs> no, yeah. So they took out the recommendation to not do that. But there's motivation to sort of standardize on the the, the things that are building packages and building wheels. It'd be really great if like we could kind of standardize on what is in there and what names. The big players are setup tools and poetry and flit, of course, but there's others around that, that do this. And uh, this PEP actually includes the authors of all of those in trying to get some of this together. Some of the motivation is to, to try to um, have some of the metadata statically defined so that other tools can uh, read it quickly and we can build an, an ecosystem around just a standard set of things. That makes a lot of sense. If you're going to put it there anyway, make it at least interchangeable and useful. Yeah, and and just kind of define what it means to have these things in there. And one of the nice one of the things I, I looked for because I kind of bugged me about the the old uh, packaging was uh, whether or not email was required. And it's nice to see that both name and I mean usually you should put like an author or maintainer name. And email is encouraged, but I don't want to put my email in there. And it's optional, <laughs> so that's cool. Yeah, exactly, because then it gets published to PyPI. And man, anytime you put your email on the internet, you just get yeah. communication. This is still in draft form officially, I think, but it's uh, I think it'll go forward. It doesn't change any of the existing core metadata, and it doesn't attempt to standardize all things that you could put in there, but some of the common things like name, version, description, where the readme is, which Python version is required, what license you have. These are all sort of standard things you, that used to be other places, but having them in the PyProject.toml would be great. So. Yeah, it seems like they belong together in there. So like, you know, <laughs> what is the name of the project? What version of Python does it require? And so on, that's, that's reasonable. Yeah, I'm actually surprised. I'm like, what, we haven't already standardized this stuff? But. Exactly. <laughs> you know what else is reasonable is uh, learning PyTest. Yeah. That's a pretty reasonable yeah. thing. And often people do it with the book. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and I'm still getting uh, some really great quotes from people, which would been, would have been good for me to be ready with that. But people contact me. I get a message probably every other day saying, man, the Python testing with PyTest book that you wrote has helped me so much to get up to speed really quickly. And I really love feedback like that. So if it's helped you, please let me know. It'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about to release a fast API course. It may actually be out by the time people hear this because there's this time travel thing that we do with podcasting. Not that much, but a little bit. So people should definitely check that out over at Talk Python Training. 
And I've already started writing the next course, so that'll be fun. Big secret there. I'm, you're cranking them out. I'm really liking this stuff, and I'm really looking forward to the Fast API course. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's all done, recorded. It just needs to, the final editing done on the videos, and it's, it's going to be really fun. I think people will love that framework. I had a lot of fun exploring it. Cool. You know what's not a lot of fun? When you get a DMCA complaint from the Record Industry Industry Association of America to take down your GitHub project. What? <laughs> that happens? <laughs> that, well, apparently, it happened to me all the time on um, a really funny story. I did a webcast like years ago when I first moved to Oregon, and there were some people who had dialed in, and it was so frustrating. Like there's all these, like hundreds of people, somebody the call on hold because they had someone come in their office, it started playing like the hold music to the whole organ. Everyone, like all hundred people were hearing this hold music and we're like, how do we get rid of this one person without getting rid of the rest? It was really bad. But the reason I bring this up now is it was like a song, a, an actual copyrighted song. When I published yeah. the webcast to YouTube, it got taken down because the hold music that was interrupting the webcast Got a, a DMCA complaint. <laughs> so anyway, That's these huge. things are super frustrating. You're like, why? This makes no sense. To anyway, so here's the story. GitHub had taken down YouTube-DL. YouTube-DL, I believe it's a Python project that allows, uh, basically gives you a CLI for downloading content off of YouTube. So yeah. if you're like, oh, that video is really awesome. I wish I had it offline. YouTube-DL space <laughs> URL-format or whatever, you know? You give it, you just run that and it downloads it. However, because the record industry puts a lot of songs and music videos and stuff up on YouTube, they said, this theoretically could be used to download a song, therefore we hate it. And so we asked GitHub to take it down. And GitHub okay. did. Interesting. Yeah. But here's the news. They revamped their copyright takedown policy, put a bunch of other policies in place, set up a legal defense fund and restored YouTube download. <laughs> and said, gave the middle finger to RIAA, basically. Yeah, because this tool, I mean, maybe this tool helps you do something you shouldn't, but it's not itself. Yeah, yeah. So also, you know, big shout out to the EFF, Electronic Founda uh, Frontier Foundation, in that they helped like critique and go through the actual legal bits of this and show GitHub like, you know what, actually what their, com their main complaint is actually not even what's happening. So the RIA argued that the tool ran afoul of Section 1201 of U.S. copyright law by giving people the means to circumvent YouTube's DRM, digital right management. So hmm. that's the important part, right? Like it's breaking this encryption prevention of copying that YouTube has. But then the EFF looked at the claims and said, you know... What it actually does is it just grabs the video stream and saves it to a file. It doesn't decrypt it or re-encode it or anything. So for things like Netflix or Widevine or things like that that use DRM, this actually has no effect on it. Only if the video is in an unprotected like MP4 format will it even work. So their main complaint <clears throat> that, oh, it breaks this, uh, in this DRM, it doesn't break DRM. So they said, we're putting it back. Okay. Yeah. And as part of this, there's like a pretty big uproar, I believe. So GitHub is implementing new policies to avoid the repeat of uh, such a situation moving forward. First, says the team of technical and legal experts will manually evaluate every single section 1201 claim. That's cool. Yeah. And instead of just going, 
whoop, it goes down. They said, if the company's team, technical and legal teams, ultimately find issues with the project, GitHub will give its owners a chance to address those problems before taking down their work. That's nice. Yeah, that's cool. And GitHub is establishing a $1 million legal defense fund for developers if somebody sues them about their GitHub project. That's actually awesome. Yeah, this is a feel-good story, right? I think. Well, yeah, because the, the individual developers sometimes are just like, you know, a handful of people or even just one person making some cool tool that they think is neat. You're giving this stuff away. You know, you can't get a lawyer or whatever to yeah. defend yourself. And a lot of times it's published to GitHub under your personal name, right? So like TalkPython has an organization and we pay GitHub like 50, 60 bucks a month to have our organization maintain repos on there, right? But yeah. a lot of people, it's just, you know, github.com slash, you know, Brian Aachen or slash Mike C. Kennedy or whatever. There's yeah. no like legal guards there, right? So it's really cool that they're doing this. Yeah, I like it. And as I was researching this into my inbox, dropped a newsletter from the EFF. Apparently I'm a subscriber to their newsletter. And they said they just launched a podcast mini series called How to Fix the Internet that examines potential solutions to six ills facing the mod- modern digital landscape. And this sounds like one of them. So people are like really interested in this. They can actually listen to the EFF series there. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, that's a wild story, right? It is very wild. Yeah. All right, what you got next here? Another one of my favorite topics? <laughs> yeah, so you like MongoDB, right? I do. I love it. So I was curi- I was actually thinking the other day, how small of a machine could I put MongoDB on? <laughs> and then Mark Smith comes out with a article that says that's how to install and configure MongoDB on a Raspberry Pi. Wow, that's awesome. Which is totally cool. So it's a, a fairly comprehensive little guide, but I didn't know you could put Ubuntu server on a Raspberry Pi either. So that's what how he how he does it. He installs the Ubuntu okay. server 64-bit on a Raspberry Pi, configures the Wi-Fi, installs MongoDB, and but there's a like a kind of a quirk on how you're supposed to install MongoDB on it. And then set up an account so that you can safely have a MongoDB server running in your house. He recommends this is like a local network thing, not a <laughs> Not even a company-wide thing. Just if you're using it yourself, go for it. If you already have a Raspberry Pi and that's like your thing that is running, that is your sort of file server or whatever reason that you have it running for, and you want a database, it's cool that you can set this up here, right? I mean, you probably wouldn't host like like a professional website on it, but who knows? Maybe you would. I've got stories. One of the things I love about MongoDB is just the ease of like setting up storage areas for it and stuff and you can just yeah it's you just easy talk to it like you expect it to be and it just becomes that way right you don't have to like run migration scripts and all that yeah so this would be i mean things like a, a home network could, to collect like um i don't know temperature data from different places and some of that stuff um or right. you know whatever things like that might be kind of a neat use for that so definitely if nice. you got like a iot thing smart home thing going on and you want to store it somewhere yeah yeah very cool i love it nice good find there so this next one is like this new little section I've just invented just for this one time called extra, 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 hear all about it. So normally <laughs> we have our extras at the end, but I had so many extras this time. I'm like, this show is going to be super long if we just keep going. So this is like all the other little tiny things grouped into one. So four, at least four more little things, but all combined. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's start with some listener feedback. So remember I went on a rant. I'm known to do that sometimes about the Stack Overflow survey and how they were comparing things that were like simply not comparable. 
Yes. And one of the things I picked on was sequel. And I said, it doesn't make any sense to have sequel compared to the popularity of sequel compared to the popularity of Python or the popularity of C sharp, because people who do C sharp, they got to use sequel. People who do Python, they got to use sequel, but not the other way around. Right. It's like, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it didn't seem like they were right. Like the, the numbers for sequel were inflated because all the other people were also happening to use sequel. But if you ask them like, what kind of developer are you? They wouldn't say I'm a SQL developer. They would say I'm a Python developer or I'm a Java developer or .NET or whatever is not <laughs> SQL, right? So John Nickerson said, hey, I feel like you're saying that people who just use SQL are not real developers. I, I just want to point out that, no, 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 that's not at all how I felt about it. I think if like your job mainly is to use SQL, then you should check that box. You should say SQL. I'm just criticizing that we've got these two things side by side in these surveys where one of them is standalone and then one of them also adds to the other, but they're put together as if they're separate and being compared. And that just didn't feel right to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's definitely people that uh, specialized SQL queries. That's a cool thing. And there, there are people that, that do that for as professionally. And I think that's super cool. But like you said, Having SQL being used by your Python is not the same as being a SQL developer. So. Right. JavaScript has exactly the same problem. Yeah. So, all the web developers that use any technology whatsoever, they also use JavaScript. But that doesn't mean Node.js Node is massively more popular than everything else. Also, okay, I just wanted to quickly follow up. When people fill out those surveys, they check anything that they've ever done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Exactly. Have I touched CSS this year? Yes, I'm a CSS developer. All right, next of the extra, this is extra number two. So remember, we talked a little while ago about Gita Von Rossum, creator of Python, retiring. We talked about him stepping down from the steering council and saying, I'm just going to chill for a while. Yeah. Yeah, he's done chilling. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, the big news, I think this is pretty big news, is that he joined, maybe as a technical fellow, I'm not sure exactly what the official role is, but he joined Microsoft now. Has a pretty That's high awesome. Up. Yeah. I think he should do call support. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So he said he decided to join. He said, I decided that retirement was boring and have joined developer division at Microsoft. To do what? Too many things to say, but it'll make using Python better for sure and not just on Windows. There's lots of open source here. Watch the space. And there are 5,000, no, 2,100 quoted tweets and... I'm not sure how it'll tell me how many conversations, but there's like an insane number of uh, replies to it as well. And a bunch of familiar faces and listeners actually right there all, all replying to Guido. Uh, one in particular I'd like to point out is, I linked to this in the show notes as well, is somebody said, I'm wondering, you know, at this point in your career, do they still ask you to submit a, res a resume? Yes, they did. And I got interviewed by Kevin Scott and Anders Halsberg and others. How cool is that? They also asked for my diploma from university, exclamation marks, says Guido. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I would think like, you just could walk up and say, hey, I created one of these languages. I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. But nope. I wanted his diploma. I don't even That's know so if bizarre. I find my diploma. God, I, I'd have to dig. I think I know where it is, but I know generally what part of the house it's in. But it's in boxes under boxes. <laughs> Anyway, that's really interesting. Okay, that's yeah. two. So extra, extra, extra. If you think about popular editors in the Python space, really these days it feels like it's narrowing down into VS Code and PyCharm. Like 
it used to be just completely all over the map when I asked that question on Talk Python. And these days it's VS Code, PyCharm, VS Code, or I was on one and switched to the other. So, and Vim. Yeah, and Vim. They don't say something like that. It's either Vim or Emacs. Yeah, it's like one yeah. of the, those types. But right here in Portland, Oregon, roaming the streets, we now have a, a new editor called Nova from Panic. Really? Yeah. So, Panic. Yeah, Panic is um, a developer-oriented company that makes native Mac apps. And they are right downtown by, uh, by Pal's Books. You can, see Pal, you can see their office from the coffee shop, I think. Cool. Yeah. So anyway, they built this thing called Nova, which is like a reinterpretation of their interpretation of what a code developer editor should be. And it's got cool things like a GitHub integration where it shows you, say, the issues around the code that you're working on and stuff like that, like as you're going through it. So I'm sticking with PyCharm. I looked through this. It looks neat and all, but I'm not using it. That said, I think it's worth pointing out that there's a, a new developer editor out there from a pretty reputable company that's putting a lot of energy into it. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's got a Vim mode. I'll try it. I think it does. I'm pretty sure I remember it. All yeah. right, last thing. Extra, 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 extra. I installed Big Sur on my Mac, and it didn't die. And all the Python things seem to be working. All the websites run. The MongoDB stuff's working. So that's really pretty neat. Homebrew stopped working, which is very frustrating because that's how I manage things like Python. But I just had to upgrade Xcode to the latest edition, and then it was good again. I don't think yeah. I put Homebrew on my computer. I, I love Homebrew. I probably do. Yeah. yeah anyway. I, I like it. Install Python, install MongoDB, install a lot of things like that. OpenSSL SSL seems always getting there somewhere. And also, I said that I ordered a new MacBook Pro instead of the Apple Silicon thing. I actually canceled that, and I'm getting a MacBook uh, Mac Mini apple one very exciting i'll let you know how it goes oh i can't wait actually yeah. I, I didn't know they were still making minis they revamped it it is now faster than any mobile mac and the only thing that will beat the mac mini is the mac like the five thousand dollar mac pro but sometimes the the six hundred dollar seven hundred dollar mac mini will still beat the five thousand dollar mac pro it's like ridiculous i'm not gonna get one of these i already got a, like a really beefy lap uh, monitor yeah exactly so. it'll do uh one 6k and one 4k monitor so dual monitors six six and 4k it's yeah. i'm telling you man this thing looks incredible you look at the Geekbench scores you look at the reviews it's really awesome and the price is like okay so i got like a thousand five hundred dollars back by canceling my macbook order and a faster computer. Nice. So anyway, cool. we'll follow up on that. Uh, let's see how that goes. Anyway, that was extra, 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 extra. Hear all about it. Nice. Well, so our normally my spot would be number six, but that'd be like, what are we at, like nine now or yeah, something? Yeah, we're at nine, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> actually, this is a cool article. I love this story. Uh, Dale Markowitz um, wrote an article called, um, I'm massacring it right now, but it's a, a Python-driven AI stylist inspired by social media. So no way. So it looks at like Instagram and like influencers and stuff. It says, this is how we think you should dress and look. Yeah. So one of the cool ideas in, and uh, it's so cool. So <laughs> she works for Google. So she's using a whole bunch of Google tools that are available to everybody else tool to things like Google storage, Firebase, cloud vision, API product search API and stuff, which actually I'd, I've never played with any of these, but it's kind of neat that they're available to really anybody that they want. And so the idea is she took pictures of all of her, every item in her closet <laughs> <laughs> and then has like folders for containing uh, the pictures of her related. So like, let's say if you've got a shirt or jacket, a few angles of the shirt and then threw those in a directory and then did that for everything in her closet. 
and then took uh, influencers that she likes, like a, a couple of social media accounts that, that do fashion shots that they, she likes how they dress. And then throws AI at it and scripts the whole thing with Python. So this thing will tell her for this particular person, that this look for this from this photo, you can kind of do this look if you use this shirt and those oh, pants okay. and these shoes. And so you've already like what you've already got, you can remix it this way. Yeah, and I think that's uh, it's probably more of an ad for uh, Google AI products, but Sell I me. think it's a cool <laughs> like you could do this, you know, with some free time and stuff and with some Python code to push it together. I love this idea. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty. All right, two thoughts. So one, I remember my statistics class, they talked about, well, if you have like three shirts and two pants and five socks and two pairs of shoes, how many, you know, here's the, the combinatorics of how many like combinations you might have, right? Yeah. So those numbers get enormous, like super quick. So this just says like, there's these, <laughs> these outfits that you didn't even know you could create out of like the hundred million possible things from your closet, which is uh Accommodations from your closet. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And also like she had to put in place. One of the things she had to do is put in place like a score. So if you like, for instance, if you've got like multiple gray shirts, they all might fit picture with the gray shirt, but they, she made it so that there was scoring so that you'd get the, like the, you could pick the highest score outfit or something. Nice. You know? Um, All right. That's cool. My other one is somebody should do this, but just for hairstyles and like beard styles, if you're a man have it pick a style and then that person has to get that cut. <laughs> right? <laughs> You're like, all right, this month I'm going to look like this. Oh my gosh. All right. Here we go. Why not? Okay. You'd have to like sort of make it like short, long to short or something because you can't go backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess you'd have to like sort by uh, order because it takes, you got to wait longer to get it to grow back out. Sort by hair. Like, yeah, there you go. Awesome. Yeah. But well, there's there's some facial hairstyles that if we could get a tool that would tell people to not try certain facial yes. hairstyles <laughs> based on what they their face shape is, that would be good. That would be very I did see a guy who had like a super big beard and decided to cut it off, but instead of just shaving it off, they were very careful and they came up with like ten or eleven different styles. They shave it to one, take a picture, shave it to the next, take a picture. It was actually pretty interesting. Yeah. But yeah, there's some good. that shouldn't be done. <laughs> all right well i already went off the uh off the deep end on the extras how about you yeah let's uh skip to the joke man oh man sounds good to me all right so this is a little bit of back to the future marty mcfly and doc all that stuff so you know he's got that cool delorean that stainless steel delorean and it's got the flux capacitor so this is a little uh little graphic from uh, dev humor from comicstrip.com and this is set in January 2006. All right. I'll be Marty and you can be Doc, okay? Okay. All right. So sitting in the DeLorean about to take off this. So what's it like in the future, Doc? Is everyone using CSS3? <laughs> wait, wait. You'll see. We're heading to 2020. Knowing all the problems you have with IE6, I'll give you something to look forward to. And then in May 2020, there's a big billboard that says, Microsoft Edge, the IE successor based on Google Chromium engine, is coming to Linux. <laughs> incredible <laughs> why okay <laughs> yeah because it can just because it yeah can. i have yeah. so i've got a work computer that's windows and i still don't use 
Edge. And you're so far behind the times. I've got Edge installed on my Mac. You do? Apparently, it installs on a Mac, yeah. <laughs> it is, but do you? did you install it? I did. Now, the question <laughs> is, do I use it? I've got like several browsers that I just don't really use. I've got Edge, I've got Brave, and I've got Opera. And I don't really use any of those. I just basically use Firefox. Unless Firefox doesn't work, then I use Chrome. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, but I technically have it installed. Like this big pop-up that has to update it about every three weeks. Like, there's an update for your computer. Click here to upgrade Edge. I'm like, I don't even run this thing. Why do I keep getting this? I, mean, I know why I get it, but like, why do I have to keep getting it, I guess? You know, there's still lots of people that don't know what browser they use. They just, they don't even know what to, if you ask them what browser they use, they don't know what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's just the internet. Well, what do you look on the websites for? I open the internet. It, you know, the internet is not an application. <laughs> what it's not <laughs> awesome yeah so that's a nice. that's a pretty good uh, little shoot to the future one yeah so link to that in show notes people want to check out the graphics cool well thanks a lot yeah you bet thanks for being here and thanks to everyone for listening see y'all Bye. thank you for listening to python bytes follow the show on twitter via at python bytes that's python bytes as in b-y-t-e-s and get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm if you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.